Jamie Lewis, here with the 805 Living Eats podcast, a production of 805 Living Magazine. For this installment, I traveled to Ojai, headquarters for Chef Robin Goldstein, a private chef, caterer, cookbook author, and purveyor of her own spice and salt blends. We sat down to talk about her inspiration as a chef, and specifically about her recipes that feature pears in the December 2019 issue. Listen in to our conversation, which took place over a beautiful breakfast Robin prepared for me in her home. I'm with Robin Goldstein in her home in Ojai. And of course, because she's a nurturing, caring person, I show up and there's a full breakfast and I'm so grateful. (laughs) So we're going to probably be munching away as we talk. But Robin, thank you so much for having me over. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here. So we, um, I wrote about pears for the December issue. Um, and I talked to you, you provided all three recipes with kind of a holiday. I mean, there's a holiday undercurrent, I suppose, and pears being in season now. You provided um, the pear tartine recipe. And when I talked to you, you told me about an experience that you had in um, Italy. Can you tell oh, listeners about that? <laughs> well, gosh, it's a great memory that I had. We were driving through Italy in the region of uh, north of Milan, and we were driving past this big tent, and we're like, what's going on over there? So we went, and it was a food symposium or conference. Um, nobody spoke English, but we walked right in, And it was sausages and cheeses and kitchens and like everything food. And these people at the at the uh, start of the festival or conference, um, they did notice that we were foreign, and they were like, "Come, come, come in!" And we spent like the whole afternoon. And after we left there, we got back in our. Volkswagen van and we're driving down the road and someone's yelling fuoco fuoco and I'm like fuoco what is that like fuego like fire fire oh my gosh and there's smoke coming out of the back of our van and that's how we got introduced to Bergamo Italia and spent a month there getting our van fixed and sorted but it was such a wonderful um, accident yeah yeah I love it that that was your excuse to spend a month there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was fall. um, I guess it was around now. It was November. Mm -hmm. It was cold and rainy and pears were around and apples were starting to come out and you could go to the market and buy roasted whole beets. Mm -hmm. And we basically lived our life around what we could buy to eat and where we were going to eat it because we didn't have our van. Mm -hmm. So we walked around a lot and we were, um, we were welcomed by the people, which, as I said, they don't speak English in that little village. Um, It's small up there. I mean, it was, yeah, Bergamo is an actual bigger town, but we lived in a village called Ville d'Alme. And um, I just can close my eyes and visualize that. Yeah, I bet. And so much of your, so much of what you make is very Mediterranean based. And I know you said you lived in Spain for a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Way before I lived in Europe, I just tended to go towards that style of food and that style of eating too, diet wise. Mm -hmm. But um, I did start 
traveling in the late 80s to Europe, and then I just loved it. So every chance I would get, I'd run away from home and go to Spain and Portugal, and I went to Italia, I went to Greece many times, and then eventually made it to the Middle East and Morocco. Mm. And so that's kind of my basis for my food and my flavors. Yeah. And how do yeah. you describe that kind of food? Mediterranean, kind of because I always go to the beach. So it's yeah. all along the Mediterranean. So it's um, seasonal. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't use a lot of um, cream or dairy in their sauces or their preparations, unless it's just the cheeses. Mm. And uh, they use olive oil instead of butter. So you'll notice when you travel, different regions have different dishes. And, you know, in the north, they're using more cream, dairy, butter, risotto, that type of thing. Mm. But in the south or along the Mediterranean, they're, um, it's much lighter mm -hmm. because the, the, um, the seasons are much warmer yeah. you know, along that area. So... You can find the same ingredients in Israel that you can in the south of Spain, but they're made in different ways. And mm. uh, it's all the same ingredients, but just different preparations. Yeah, and different spices, probably. There's a lot of the same. Really. Oh, are they? I mean, you'll see more of the um, ethnic spices and the cumin and the cardamom in the Middle East and Morocco. And then you'll see more fresh basil, herbs de Provence, thyme in France and Italy. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's just really interesting how you can take the same ingredients, literally, you could get five ingredients and prepare them in Spain, France, Italy, the Middle East, Greece and Morocco and make something totally different each time. Yeah. So Oh my gosh. And it just sounds so all of those things, all of those places may they the cuisine has such a specific feel and taste and they're all the kinds of things that we can actually make here too because Absolutely. we have so much produce um and such a renewed uh you know it's a revival of olive oil and wines and um heritage heirloom um wheat for breads and all of that so you definitely capitalize on all of that definitely and my latest cookbook that is coming out this month crafting a meal it's basically tours around it, uh, Europe with me. Mm -hmm. So and I've brought that back to here because I'm cooking here in the Santa Barbara Central Coast area, in Ojai and Santa Inez, and I'm taking the ingredients that are seasonal, and making my uh, European interpretations of these foods. And it's the same ingredients. So yeah. I'm, I feel so blessed to be going to a different farmer's market every day, depending on where mm -hmm. I'm cooking. And um, I'm just happy in the kitchen. Yeah, you yeah. definitely are. So yeah. when you meet somebody at a party and they say, what do you do? I mean, how do you give that answer <laughs> succinctly? Because you do a lot. Well, usually when I'm at a party, I'm in the kitchen because I'm <laughs> cooking for it. Right. Um, but uh, I really have two businesses. I'm a chef for many, many years, 38 years now. Gosh, that's a long time. Um mm -hmm. And then I also have a product line. So I just basically say I have two businesses, my chefing business and my products. And I'm really wanting to segue into the product, um, producing more products, creating uh, a bigger line, uh, distributing it across the nation and um, doing more demos and presentations and classes. And I'm not going to get out of the kitchen, I no. don't think, but... 
um, to do the weekly parties and meals and things like that. I'm segueing out of that yeah. to kind of go to a different level, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And your spice blends and your salts. Um, I love the concept of a taste of Ojai, a taste of Santa Barbara. How do you decide what those tastes are? Well, I decided uh, five years ago after I'm always cooking with fennel, mm. pink peppercorns, and lavender because they grow around here. Um, those are the flavors of Ojai that I've decided, and I incorporate those into the recipes into the cookbooks. So you can find fennel along the mountains on our hikes. Um, we have all these Brazilian pepper trees growing around here, and that is not a true peppercorn, but it is so floral and lovely, and I mix it in with a pink Himalayan sea salt, and it's just a lovely on-the-table salt to use with everything salt and pepper. And then, um, of course, lavender. We're so known for our lavender festival here in Ojai. Yeah. And people think, oh, lavender, that goes in the bath or, you know, a bath, bath yeah. aroma therapy. Um, lavender, if you can think of it as thyme. Hmm. So it is floral, but it is sort of that aroma of thyme, oregano, marjoram. And so you can use it on its own. Mm-hmm in place of thyme, like in risotto or chicken, or um, what do I put it on in? Oh, actually, the mascarpone for the pears, right? Yes. And so it doesn't have that um, bath feeling. No. Um, and then like herbs to Provence in France always has a little bit of lavender in it. So right. um, that scrub <clears throat> like that dry, almost um, south of France scrub smell, mm-hmm. I think about is um, you know, all of those different herbs. And they, when you take a walk in the south of France, it's coming up, you know, heated by the sun and from the ground and it comes up and just wafts up. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. And people look at me with this big question mark on their face. How am I supposed to use your lavender salt? Mm. And that's why I bring back the reference to time. Yeah. Because it's easier to translate. Right. And then in Sp- um, Santa Barbara, because of the Spanish influence, I made a lemon rosemary salt. Mm. I made a um, Mediterranean sea salt with the herbs de Provence, because Santa Barbara is the Mediterranean, to, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, the French Riviera. Mm-hmm. And then I also make a chili garlic, which is the ode to the fiesta. Oh, So wonderful. it's got a lot of chili, jalapeno little cayenne it's a little spicy and then a lot of garlic so it's a great seasoning it's right next to my stove yeah Yeah. right all the time I'm sure yeah um as you have been writing the cookbooks because I know that's a huge part of what you do how do you um how do you come up with recipes I mean are they just tied tried and true recipes that you've used throughout your career or do you develop them specifically for the cookbook um both Uh, Some of them are tried and true. And I mean, as a chef, we're so um, influenced by what's growing and what's seasonal. So sometimes I'll aim to make one thing and it will come out another way. So sometimes it's off the cuff. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's something like I've been making this for this client for the last 20 years, which I actually do have a few clients for 15, 20 years. Wow. That I do their events for them. And um you know, actually, in one of my um, cookbooks, I make this sun-dried tomato schmear that you put on bread or as an appetizer with sun-dried tomatoes and feta cheese, and it has a little capers and 
olives, and it was made for my client, John Tesh and Connie Selica. And she's like, if you are going to put this in your cookbook, you have to call it Conchetta's Bruschetta, because that's her (laughs) Italian name. So I did. And um, so things like that happen where I'm making something for somebody and I make it because they request it every time. And then sometimes I'm making like I made this frittata and I used what I had in the fridge, which is really fun because as a chef and as a cookbook author, we give you recipes, but you might not like mushrooms and you may want to leave those out and you're allowed to do that. Yeah. Or you may be allergic to garlic. So you can look at a recipe and pick and choose what you like out of it. As long as you're basically following the basic uh, preparation, yeah, the method. Yeah. But, you know, you can make it your own and you're allowed to. And yeah. I think people are afraid to veer off of the written recipe. Yeah. And that's something my grandmother taught me years ago is to taste your food. And to not be a slave to what's written on the paper. Taste your food as you go. As you're cooking. That's the most important thing. Because I could have the recipe written down, which have been tested over and over again by myself and others. Uh, However, you know, there are different variables. Your oven may be different. Your salt that you're using may be a little slightly less salty or more. And there's always... um, you know, there's different ingredients that you might have on the East Coast of the United States right. compared to what we have here in California. So yeah. I'm giving you the permission <laughs> to go outside of that page on the, the written words and um, make it your own. Yeah. Which is fun. How did you get your start? So I was literally born in a restaurant. My family had restaurants back East. Mm. My dad and my grandfather ran um, a beautiful restaurant called the golden parrot in washington dc i love that name and uh it was um an historical monument building that my grandparents took over i'm gonna say it was in the 60s it had to have been earlier because i was born in the 60s so it was in the 50s and um they made this beautiful menu and um they my dad didn't work in the kitchen but my dad grew up there basically watching my grandfather and so when he met my mom they moved in because it had a whole floor it was a five-story building they had a whole floor where they uh, housed it themselves and my sister and so i was born in the restaurant business and so moving forward fast forward to when i was in high school Um, you know, I wasn't the best student and interested in that many things, but I got a job in a cheese and wine store and I lied about my age and told them I was 16 so I could get in there Mm. and I was only 14 and I loved it. You were 14 years old working in a cheese and wine shop. Yes. And my boss was like, okay, somebody has to help the customers with the cheese part. Otherwise they were buying subs and sandwiches. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll help. And so he started teaching me about cheeses way back when, the Emmentaler and the Jarlsberg. And back then there weren't as many being imported. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved that. And I loved, and nobody wanted to do that because it smelled like cheese. And I loved that. So that was one of my first jobs. And then I got many other little jobs here and there working in restaurants. But, you know, as a starting person, you know, as bottom of the, of the rung. And then... After high school, my grandmother took me to New York and showed me the Culinary Institute of America. Mm. I had no idea. This is like 1982. Mm. And um, she's like, what do you think? And I'm like, 
oh my gosh, I would love to go here. She saw well she saw potential she saw your interest definitely I was side by side with her in the kitchen all the time cooking and watching and listening and tasting and so she literally gave me one thousand dollars to start school and she encouraged me the whole way my dad was still remembering a dish that I made then that I came home from school for the weekend and made a duck dish. And up until this year when he passed, he would always say, I remember that duck that you made in 1983 or something. Anyway, 84, I graduated. I'm out of here. I bought a car and drove across the country by myself and moved to California. You definitely wanted to get to the West Coast. You knew you definitely. wanted to. I wanted to get out of the weather, the mm-hmm. seasons, and I also wanted to get away from my family. And <laughs> standard it happens. You know, it happens. And then I actually had visited here the year prior and I saw the restaurant industry that was booming in California. It was the mid eighties mm-hmm. and Alice Waters in Northern California. And um I actually grew up watching Julia Child every day after school. It was one soap opera and then Julia Child and then Graham Kerr, the galloping oh. gourmet. Mm-hmm. And I loved watching those. And I loved how she just kind of, she did follow recipes, but she kind of ad-libbed a little bit. Yeah. And she was drinking wine and so exotic. And <laughs> that was started my love for cooking and for travel. And so I came out here. I got jobs in a few restaurants. I worked at the Border Grill with Susan and Mary Sue. And I had such a great experience with them. And then I moved on to catering very early on. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a number of catering businesses until I started my own personal chef, private chef business and catering company. Yeah. So wow, it's it like, sounds like you're dyed in the wool. Oh, you definitely. are. Yeah. I can't get out of it. No, no, I love it. I love it. I'm a Virgo, so I'm very nurturing. So it kind of goes with my demeanor, and I love to have people enjoy food and sit at the table mm-hmm. and and have a meal together as a community really it's everyone's rushing here and there yeah true no one's really cooking that much anymore actually there's a little resurgence of mm-hmm. that i think um but it's just you know sit at the table and relax and eat off of the nice dishes right. and use the nice silverware that you have stuck away in that cabinet and bring out the glassware and take even if it's a for a toast or a peanut butter sandwich use your dishware yeah. and take that moment to kind of reconnect with your family with your loved one with your boyfriend with your girlfriend whatever. with yourself too. with yourself too i mean if i'm here by myself i don't actually have any plastic or paper plates yeah. here but if i'm here by myself and i just need a moment I'll pour myself a cup of tea and a nice cup and just sit and, you know, it's really nice. Yeah, and it builds margins, I think, into our life to keep the important things important, to keep first things first. Definitely. That tradition, and um, you can pass that on Mm -hmm. to your children. And I asked my daughter, we have breakfast here every morning, whether it's a piece of toast or just always a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And I make a pot, and we just sit here for even if it's just five minutes before I drive her off to school. Mm. And I said to her, if I buy you a teapot, will you do this for yourself and eventually your own family? And she said, absolutely. Mm. That brings tears to my eyes. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a good gift. Yeah, definitely. 
Tell me just a little bit about pears because that's what we oh, connected right. on. Right. Um, so what is it about, it sounds like you have a real thing for pears, which I do too. Um, and it was interesting talking to you about the different varieties that work well for certain things. So how do you define, I mean, what does an Anjou work best for? What does a Bosque work best for Bartlett? Oh, gosh. I'm I mean, I have to remember what I said. <laughs> well, no, but yeah. I mean, just, you know, anecdotally, well, how do you use You know, those? there's the, um, the Anjou is a little firmer. And I think I had suggested that for the poached. Yes. In the mulled wine spices. And, um, you know, like a Bartlett or a Bosque has more of a greeniness to it. Mm-hmm. And the Anjou has that more of a smooth texture yeah. to it. So... I mean, it really, it's not defined. It's what you can get. Mm-hmm. And um, the softness or the ripeness of the pear is good for different preparations. But, yeah. you know, different areas of the country might have different types of pears or that store might only have that different variety. Right. So, you know, don't let the recipe, again, lock you into the type of pear. Yeah. Um but there are so many varieties and the colors too. They're just, even though you might be peeling the skin off, they affect the flavor. Mm. And um, well, I just love the mascarpone spread that I totally. make with the lavender. It has a little bit of honey and you spread it on toast and you put some grilled pear. If you don't have a grill, then just sear it in a little skillet on top of the stove yeah. or put it under the broiler so you can get that same effect. Mm. Um, the poached pears are amazing with the mold spices. So elegant too to look at. Definitely, and you can actually drink that liquid after you've poached the yeah. pears for a little warm treat in the afternoon or early evening. Yeah. And what was the third recipe? The ah, mustarda. The mustarda. Yeah. So that's kind of a take from Italia. Usually they use citrus in those recipes, but you can find an apple. Or actually, I kind of made it up with the pear. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of a cross between a chutney and a salsa, really, yeah, if you or will, like or marmalade, relish, or relish. Yeah. And they make those a lot there. And actually, a lot of different countries in Europe make those type of things because what they're doing is using the fresh ingredients and putting it up so that they have it for the winter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, years ago, they didn't have the little markets everywhere to go to. So they're making what they grow. Right. And putting it up, and it's great with meats and cheeses, a charcuterie board, mm-hmm. and uh, wintry foods. I mean, definitely. I think about yeah, the fact that you can preserve that um, means that when you're having you know pork chops or um, uh, I don't know, there's a number of you sausage know, or right, then some ham or some prosciutto. Yeah. There's a lot of in Italy where actually where we where we caught on fire, fuego. Um, <laughs> There was a, a bar that we would go to. We had our dog with us, so we had to like just go to certain places. And it was called a cold kitchen. It was a bar. They didn't serve hot foods, so their menu was basically a cheese board or charcuterie, some ham, and they had the mustarda there, and it was just so interesting. And um, they always gifted us with grappa at the end of our stay. And my f- traveling companion didn't drink grappa. So I had to drink it for both of us. Um, but it was um, those type of places, those type of establishments that would have those mustards and mustarda yeah, simple, simple. and little tapenades and things like that. Yeah. 
I love that. Meze. Right. Tapas. It's that same antipasti. Right. Sharing small Small plates. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate, first of all, those recipes, which are just beautiful. And so they have your signature on them for sure. And thank you for talking to me and having me over. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for this installment of the 805 Living Eats podcast. To get your hands on Robin's recipes for poached pears in mulled wine, pear tartines, and pear mostarda, all perfect for the holiday season, check out the December 2019 issue of 805 Living Magazine or visit 805livingmagazine.com. Thanks to Chris Lambert for editing this podcast. Until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.